0: Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's
1: up my friends, welcome to the Board Game Design Lab, we're here today talking about two-player games, two-player experience, what makes a really good two-player game, and we're talking to the resident expert on the
0: two-player experience, Mr. Richard Ham from Rotto Runs Through. How you doing, Richard? Hey man, I don't know that I would call myself an expert, <laughs> maybe more of an advocate. An
1: advocate, well, I, you know, considering the experience you have in playing two-player games, how many games do you think you've played and, and as in, in that two-player mode?
0: Oh, I mean, all. I pretty much play 100% of my gaming, or 99.9% of my gaming is two-player only. If it doesn't have a solid two-player uh, mode or variant or whatever you want to call it, I'm probably not going to give it a second thought. I'm never going to look at it.
1: Right, and, and just give me an idea. How many games do you think you've played since 2009 when you first got in
0: the hobby? Oh, let's see. I would hazard a guess... Since I got in the hobby, probably not quite a thousand. Right. See, I'm going I'm to call you an expert
1: just from the, the sheer number of experiences you've had and the, the differences and seeing it in different angles. Uh, I realize you're not a designer, but you are, are more than qualified to be here today talking to us. Well, I will agree I am an expert in what I like, so <laughs> we'll go with that. We'll go with that, and that's what we're going to talk about today, just getting your thoughts, your perspective, your angle. Uh, on the two player experience you know there's a lot of uh, game designers out there hopefully listening right now that are creating some really cool games and i just want them to be aware of that two player mode because there are so many people that are only able to play two players i'm one of them uh, i live in honduras and, and it's just me and my wife that, that play games together i know you're over in malta and so your wife's your yep, main same situation yep exactly and uh, do you do you have like any kind of a gaming group any kind of friends over there that you're able to play
0: with Oh, do I have any friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, friends that play games. Um, well, let's uh, see. I live on Gozo, which is a little tiny satellite island off of Malta itself. And there there are some gamers. There is a gaming group in Malta that meets weekly. But for me to get to them would be about a two-hour trip there or a two-hour trip back. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you know, a, a ferry ride that's not cheap. So it just doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, I understand. Uh, for me most of the people here uh, speak spanish and so i would have to go through every game and translate everything into spanish and and uh, it's yeah i just play with my wife it's just easier (laughs) just to play (laughs) me and her or the friends that you know i do have that are americans uh they love the the big party games like spyfall works really well with them and games like that but you know i'm not going to sit down and play pandemic with them or or anything of that weight or heavier and so that's where I'm at. Uh, but I feel like the two-player experience is is good. You know what I mean? Like you get a lot in that two-player experience. If a game does it well, uh, they can yep. even be better than the four-player experience in a lot of games. And so I just want to talk about what, what makes a good two-player experience, um, what makes a good game scale, like how it scales down and things like that. Uh, so, you know, from your perspective, what what is better in games about the two-player experience that you don't get in the bigger play counts?
0: Well, I mean, I'm actually inclined to agree with you. Even if I did have, if I was surrounded by three or four different game groups and they were all five minutes away, I would still probably be more inclined just to play with Jen because I do tend to enjoy two-player more. And there's a few reasons for it. I mean, probably one of the biggest ones is you know chaos versus control. The more players are sitting at that table, the more stuff is going to happen to the board before it comes back around to my turn. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In some games, that's a really great thing because games, some designs embrace that chaos and want to put you in a situation where it's very tactical. Right. It's my turn. What can I do right now? Um, But, you know, both my wife, Jen, and I find that we prefer to be able to think a little bit more long term. We are more strategic players than tactical players. We do like to make a bigger, more high level plan and see it play out over several turns. With only one other player at the table, the world is just fundamentally not going to change as much before it comes back around to me. So that's a big, big part of it. More, you have more control. Not always, but as a general rule. I mean, heck, sometimes games will try to emulate the chaos you get from other players by actually you know, throwing in events or what have you that will happen just to keep things spiced up. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we just kind of tend towards liking control over chaos. Another big thing, probably even bigger, is time. When it boils right down to it, every additional person you add, it's going to add. Well, depending on the game, an extra ten minutes, an extra twenty minutes, an extra hour, you know, whatever it might be. I like to get in, get it done, and move on to the next thing where wherever possible. So, um, you know, I mean, just because you know, I I want to do more with less. Uh, specifically play more games in less time if, if, if I ever can I mean I don't mind occasionally sitting down for some big epic three hour long game but if I had my druthers I'd rather pay three moderately epic games in the same amount of time and get three radically different experiences so you know that's really a big part of it too but even more than either of those is the fact that I love my wife she's my partner for life she's my best friend there is no better person to play games in the world than her for me um, you know, no offense to the other people who I occasionally play games with—they're all very nice and lovely and charming and affable—but they don't hold a candle to my wife.
1: Right. Yeah, I understand totally. There. One thing I love about the two-player experience is it does allow you to really strategize, to really yeah. think through and come up with this big strategy, and it doesn't—it nec- doesn't usually get broken down the way it does in, in a three, four, five. Player game, and so, uh, but that can also be kind of a detriment. So, what are what are some of the worst things, or are the things that uh, make the two player experience worse than the the bigger play
0: count? Well, I would say certainly for us, the biggest problem with two player is it almost always makes the game more cutthroat mm-hmm. because of the zero sum nature. If you know you and me are playing with another player, a third party, and I have an opportunity during play to go after you to destroy something you've done or steal something from you or whatever, uh, that implicitly means that I'm slowing you down, but I'm also slowing myself down uh, because I'm not moving myself forward. I'm slowing you down. Hmm. And that means that third or that fourth or fifth player, they're the ones who come out ahead. So you know, me making an aggressive move against you, it has to be really, really useful. Um, So I'm not I'm not put in a situation quite as often, no matter what game it is to just rush right out and beat you down. But suddenly when there is no third party and every time I stop you, that is moving me forward in equal measure. It becomes a much more viable, much more powerful and much more um, attractive alternative to just go right in and bury you. And you know, for some people, that's not going to be a problem at all. Heck, for some people, that's probably another uh, another feather in two players' cap. Yeah, that um, every time I try to you know smash your sandcastle, it's um you know it's building mine up twice as fast. But for me and Jen, we don't want to attack each other. We don't want to hurt each other. We want to be able to build something. We want to, something we're proud of and do the best we can, but not at the expense of each other. Because I would take no pleasure in actually. Harming my wife, either in a game or in real life. I mean, it, I, I just cannot do it. And I know a lot of people say, "Oh, it's just a game. You got to put that aside. Bygones be bygones." Doesn't matter. I, I can derive no pleasure from Schadenfreude. You know, I mean, Schadenfreude is a, is an alien concept to me. If I do something that harms her, even if she's totally fine, she's like, "No, go ahead. I, I earned, I deserve it. I was way too wide open. You got to come in here. You got to smack me down." I still feel terrible about it. And why do I want to play a game that makes me feel terrible? It just makes no sense. So um, because I am the ultimate Care Bear, and by the way, that's not just with my wife. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, you just don't want to hurt your wife, but you'll get more blood through other people. No. If I was playing with you, I wouldn't want to smash your sandcastle either. I would feel bad about it. And so why would I want to play a game that makes me feel bad? Unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, a two-player game will put me in a situation where, okay, I've got an option here. I can do this thing, which is kind of nice. It'll help me out a little bit. Or I can do this thing that will crush you. And it has the amplified element of building me up just through the zero-sum nature. So I have to do that. So that's a real problem. There are so many games that Jen and I would love to play. But because they just have a tiny smidge of player versus player aggression woven in, and if you were to play it as a three or four or five player game, it would just be a little bit. Often you wouldn't even do it in a two-player game. Suddenly those become huge winning strategies. That means there's a lot of wonderful games: um, Deus, uh, uh, Seven Wonders Duel. Um, you know, I mean, I, I could list off a dozen games with a little bit of thought that. We love the design of, but we just won't touch with the 10-foot pole because in two-player and two-player only, they become too mean.
1: Yeah, I remember your uh, run-through of Eclipse was like that, where mm-hmm. you, you, you talked about at the end, you like, well, I love building up this over here, but there gets to a point in the game where I now have to go destroy what my opponent has built and how yes. like, the game was just not for you because of that, but you know, in a three or four player game, all of a sudden you can spread that you know attacking out so you don't feel like, oh, you're just uh, focused on one player destroying everything they've built. Now you can kinda uh, go over here, go over there, go over there, and it, and it doesn't feel as cutthroat or as mean. Uh, it's exactly, funny, yeah. It's funny you talk about being the, the Care Bear. I've got a buddy that uh, you actually played his prototype for a game years ago at, a, at, at I don't even remember the convention, but uh, it was a take that game. It's a space battle, one-on-one, take that, fighting uh game. And I'm not going to say the, the name because I don't want him to <laughs> <what laughs> embarrass it. But uh, you got to the end of it, and you said, well, it's a pretty good game, but it's not for me. And yep. and like you crushed him in that moment. And I was actually talking to him the other day, and I was talking about this interview coming up. And he said, yeah, he played my game. He said it wasn't for him. Like He was all sad. And I said, yeah, but that's because your game is a take that game. Like, he, yeah. like Grotto doesn't like games that he's just going back and forth, fighting and, oh, and destroying. No. his. Like, he, he didn't understand. Yeah, he didn't know, like, your character of gaming, so to speak. And so, don't worry, I made things right. I made him understand that it <laughs> had nothing right. to do with his game so much as just, like, that's not the kind of game uh, you, you enjoy. Uh, yeah. But, you know, thinking about designers, it's so important for a designer to realize if you have a game that really self-balances itself – with the three or four players, whatever it self balances in that players kinda keep each other in check or kinda like what you were saying, um, it makes it not as a good idea to attack another player because that third player all of a sudden has an advantage, now they can come in or now they get extra points, whatever. Well, that's not gonna be the case in that two player experience. And to be aware yeah. of that and to I don't know if there's ways to mitigate it so much or but at least think through that process. And that kind of leads to the, the next question. What are some mechanics that
0: you think work really, really well in two-player games or the two-player experience? Well, I mean, I think just about any mechanism can work perfectly well. I mean, I a lot of people say, oh, auctions will never work as a two-player game. I can show you plenty of auctions that are fantastic two-player. Worker placement, of course, works very, very well. And worker placement is probably one of the easiest overall game structures to be able to scale down for two-player because you just turn off some of the spaces um, on the board or, you know, there's actually lots of different ways you could do it. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think to flip the question, what would be a game mechanism that cannot be converted into good two-player? I mean, about the only thing I can think of is trade slash negotiation. You know, Settlers of Catan type stuff because, again, in zero-sum, there is no way you and I could ever make a trade because we both have a vested interest in ensuring that um, we come out on top again. As soon as you've got that third player, yeah, let's make a trade that's good for both of us because it leaves that third player behind. And in two player, you can't. But you know, short of uh, some stuff like that, I mean, anything can work well with two. Even you know the sacred cows that some designers say can never work with two, like auctions. I mean, Peloponnes is a fantastic two player auction game. As is uh, Homesteaders. I mean, Homesteaders is a really cool and interesting example of how to integrate interesting two player. Additional mechanisms to create in a two-player situation the extra dynamics that would go on with a third player, uh, you know, through the use of a dummy bidder. Where, in I forget, it's been a while since I played Homesteaders, but the basics is that there is a third bidder who will follow a certain set of rules, and it it, it, he becomes a predictable player. Uh, you know, and some people might say, oh, I don't want to play against somebody who's predictable. But a predictable element of the game means that just gives me, as a player, another tool that I can manipulate and strategize over. So there's this predictable third player that will always raise their bid from round to round. Oh, I didn't win this auction? Okay, next auction, I'm prepared to bid one higher. And I'll bid one higher until I eventually win. And then um, for the following auction, I'll fall all the way back down and I'll start working my way back up to where I win. Just having that third person suddenly makes that auction, um, you know, take on this extra level of strategy and I would suggest takes on an even more interesting level of strategy because, again, he is predictable. It's another thing. A human being, you know, if I know you really well and I have a good idea for what you personally value, then it becomes this interesting metagame. But if you're a total stranger, honestly, I think I'd rather play with a dummy because I can actually, I mean, again, it comes back to that chaos versus control choice. And what's more interesting to you as a player? I like having more strings that I can pull, pull to um you know turn the odds in my favor, whether I succeed or not is another question, but yeah,
1: right, and even you know having a predictable dummy player for the most part people they they are fairly predictable in games because there's only a handful of really good uh, options at any given time and you're yeah. not quite sure if they're going to pick option A, B, or C, but you're, you're pretty sure of these three and so for a dummy player to be predictable it kind of emulates real life or simulates real life more so than, oh, just flip a card and do some random chaotic thing that might make sense or might make no sense at all, because uh, that could really throw off a game when you, when you do that sure Um. I want to come back to mechanics that scale well. You, know, talking, you kind of touched on that a little bit, but what about a game like Time Stories, where it's very ex- experiential? You know, And so I don't know that this is a mechanic that works or doesn't work with two players, but I know I, I watched your review of, or your run-through of Time Stories, and you talked about some very interesting issues that I think are important
0: for people designing two players, two-player games to be aware of. Well, yeah, Time Stories is an interesting situation because for the longest time, when that, when that was first listed on BoardGameGeek, they proud and loud said, hey, this is for three or four players. That's it. And so I had completely ignored the game. I, I was interested in it, but I said, oh, three-player minimum? Forget about it. Never going to touch it. And then at the last second, right before they released it, oh, we have two-player rules. We have two-player rules. What was their solution for two-player? Um, probably the worst example of what a designer can do to scale their game down for two, which is, oh, each player controls two characters. So, you're really, it's a four player game where I'm having to control two characters. Right. And, I mean, God, is there a game where that actually works? I mean, don't no, get me wrong. That can work, um, you know, in, just in terms of a raw design exercise. Uh, and in, arguably, it gives you even more strength to pull. Oh, wow, now because I can play these two characters off each other in addition to playing them off the two that you control. But it changes the. The flavor it changes the character of the game too much. Whenever a game puts you in that circumstance, and certainly that was true for time. That was true for time stories because what's brilliant about time stories? Time stories really, at the end of the day, is not that great a game, but it's a fantastic, it's a phenomenal shared experience you can have. I mean, the game is incredibly shallow. Hmm. Just move from point to point um, and roll some dice to try to right. you know, hit certain targets before time runs out. That's it. It's, hmm. it's, it's, it's couldn't be more shallow. But the interesting thing about that game, experientially, is the fact that when I move over to this desk in an office, I'm the only person that moves there. I get to reveal the card. I get to look at that card, um, see what, see what's hidden inside, what secrets it has um, you know, waiting to reveal, And this is the thing about time stories. I don't just read the card verbatim to everybody sitting around the table um, and just become a narrator for the story, which is what every other narrative-driven board game does. Every other one. They have a very strict rule. Put the card back down and describe what you saw. And then instantly I become a storyteller. And that is amazing. That is the true thing that makes time stories special above all else. And so – That's great. I love that. And I understand why the developers decide, hey, you know what? The more storytellers you have sitting at the table, the more rich and atmospheric the game is going to be. If you have three people telling each other stories, great. If you have four people, even better. So I understand on some level why they decide, well, you know what? We don't even want two people to experience this game because there's just not as much interesting dynamic social elements that come about. Um, And, okay, I get that. But then they decide at the last minute, oh, let's have our cake and eat it too. And they and they just say, oh, well, let's just make it a four-player game. Now, time stories with the rules as written means we come into a room. Okay, I'll move myself to the desk and over to the window. And I will literally, as a character, be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And I um, will look at both of these cards and I'll put them both down and I'll describe both of them to Jen. So arguably I'm getting to do twice the storytelling. But I feel like I'm half the character. I am no – that character is no longer an avatar for me to project myself to feel like I'm in the world. It's very, very important that when we come into this room and we're deciding, okay, who's going to do what? Okay, I'll go search the decks. You go check the window. If I'm doing both, suddenly I'm not in that world anymore. I am some disembodied general giving orders to other characters. And, I mean, that's just a, – that's a textbook example of how to take – Something that's a really cool, evocative, and um, engaging experience. If I'm – hey, everybody, I'm going to go check out the table. No, no, no. Now, okay, I'm going to send him to the table and I'm going to send him to the window. That's not my story I'm telling anymore. And it it was just – it's heartbreaking to see that they decided to make that choice. Instead of doing the extra work – and I totally agree – it would be extra work. Extra tweaking, extra balancing and whatnot to ensure that, you know what, no, the game will work fine with only two avatars walking around in the world so that each player can get that same time story experience of feeling like, no, I'm you know I'm in this world and I'm telling this story as opposed to I'm floating somewhere above this world. I'm sitting at a table telling the story of what happened to other people. Yeah. Um, that's probably my single least favorite two-player solution that a designer can come up with. Just Duplicate it. Make it a four-player game, and each player controls two. It's almost always terrible. Yunnan was another example that did it. And, I mean, that was a brilliant, brilliant game, but, oh man, I broke my heart when I saw that's how they decided to crack the two-player nut.
1: Yeah, I think it's important for a designer who's making a an experience driven game, a game where they want the the players to really feel like that character or that that person in that world. Uh, if you if you split that, if you make them if you make them have to focus on more than just that one character, you're totally going to lose the experience. you're, yeah. you're, you're going to feel like well, a puppet master.
0: You're you're you yeah, you're going to create a different experience. Yeah, that's true. And I, mean, I got to assume that the Time Stories guys understood that, which is why they kind of rejected doing two player in the first place. Right. And I don't know, maybe they just bowed to industry pressure because if you can't put 2P two two p on that box, you're really going to undercut your sales.
1: Right. And I, I feel like that's what it was. And they didn't have time to really create something. Cause, Ironically. I mean Yeah. <laughs> they should have gotten back in the caissons. Um but okay. they they didn't you know didn't have time to come up with a really good two player solution because they have a good three player solution you know I don't want to do any spoilers but in the in the different scenarios they figured out how to make it good for three players to, so it scales exactly. and all that and they, they could have done that with two players I feel like they just ran out of time you know ironically this happens a lot with the other side they, a game box will say oh yeah it's good for five or six players and the game is awful with five or six mm. players and they put it on there just because it would be a, a bigger uh, market. You know, it would look better in the marketplace, and oh, okay, we can play with five, great. But then you play with five, and it's like a two-hour long game when it's supposed to be forty-five minutes because you got all these extra people and all that. Um, so it's kind of it's interesting. Have you seen any other games that um, that just don't scale very well with that two-player experience?
0: Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, hundreds of them. Yeah, easily. What are some hundreds. of
1: the What are some of the main ones? And and maybe give a, a thought or a, an idea on why that game just doesn't work well with two players.
0: Hmm. okay hold on a second let me uh, pull up a list because actually I keep a list um, of every game I've ever gotten rid of and I just write a little note down for why yeah because you know doing Roto runs through people are always asking me well why do you still have this game why'd you get rid of it or whatnot um, anybody listening can just go and check it out it's at Com. and um, let's see so I've just gone here and how, how long is this list now <laughs> what is this list at?
1: And real quick so for everybody listening I want you to understand I'm not doing this to rag on games or to make fun of any games or anything like that. Uh, I think it's important to recognize when a game doesn't work very well. And again this is all opinion based, but when a game doesn't work well and why so that we can learn how to how to do better, how to how to grow from the experience. Go back and watch the film on, on other things so to speak and, and and gain from it. So
0: yeah. I I am looking at this is a list of 468 games that I have had and gotten rid of over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and easily easily a third of all of these, my note was needs more than two players to reach full potential. It just happens over and over and over again. Um, you know and it's it's almost always uh, let me just pick one. I'm sorry. Actually, I totally lost track of what the question was. I just went down my own little rabbit hole here. <laughs> what are some of the games that, that really just don't work well with two
1: players? Maybe they're great games, but just don't work with two players. Oh, oh, just in general, that can't
0: be made to work well with two player. Um, probably. I mean, I, I, like I mentioned, um, you know, any game that re- relies on players doing any kind of barter or social interaction mm-hmm. just kind of falls apart. Um, you I mean because you, you just can't make deals. And I mean, another really tough one is going to be any kind of area control game, mm-hmm. because, again, it comes back to that whole, you know, that zero sum nature that, you know, the game becomes a bit more dry and boring, a bit more tit for tat if, OK, well, yeah, look, here's a certain amount of train there is out in the world and whoever has the most of it by the end of the game wins. Um, when there's three players, you suddenly get these incredibly interesting and dynamics going on. Of okay, I really own this northern territory, and you're and the two of you are kind of like dueling it out for the south. And then at some point during the game, you realize, oh my god, we've been fighting each other so long. We're gonna let you know whoever's up north win. We have to basically temporarily put aside our differences and kind of agree to take him down. Uh, you know that kind of thing can never happen in a two-player game.
1: Yeah. Because,
0: again, it comes back to that zero-sum. Every time I take something from you, I've effectively gained it for myself. Every point you lose is a point I gain. And so, you know, an area control game is going to be one that really, really um, has a hard time with that. So, but I mean, you know, there are certainly examples of area control games that work well with two. I mean, heck, there are examples of area control games that are designed to work only with two. Like um, like a Twilight Struggle. Or, you know, 1960. So, I mean, those games can't be just a straight, oh, uh, area control, yeah, you've got your three troops in, I've got to move four troops in, that'll um, and that means your three are out, my three are out, I'll have one left over. You can't, it can't be as simple as that. Suddenly, area control has to take on a different layers of mechanisms, like, oh, once you've allowed me to take a control of a certain area and hold it for a while, it becomes harder and harder and harder and more difficult for it to be taken from me. You know, once I'm really entrenched. So you almost have to kind of give up on it. You have to make a choice. As soon as you see me take something, do I abandon what I'm trying to do myself to prevent you from holding on to that, or do I let you get your roots in? Um, you know, I mean, and, you know, that's something you don't need in an area control game with more because, you know, the, again, the dynasism of, you know, constantly shifting alliances, uh, you know, creates a really cool ecosystem for the game but with two players you 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 have to work a lot harder to make that an interesting and you know experience it's worth coming back to over and over again
1: right considering that list that that you have right there in front of you what are some of the trends that you see are there any kind of things that happen over and over and over again you said you know just doesn't live up to potential but anything else
0: i will tell you by far the single biggest mistake and i see it over and over and over again and it's child's play for designers to solve this problem. Uh, it's, it's not at all uncommon. It's, it's actually another form of area control to have a progress meter. Right? Um, hey, it's a progress meter for fame or power or money or whatever. And at the end of the game, whoever is at the top of this meter, whoever has pushed their way up the farthest, they score 10 points. And whoever comes in second scores 5 points. Whoever comes in third scores 2 points. And whoever comes in fourth and fifth scores nothing. Right. It's a really common thing. You see that in hundreds of games yeah. and almost without exception when they say, oh, for the two player rules. Um, oh, yeah. Well, they change nothing. And then, OK, hey, the, whoever comes in first gets 10 points. Whoever comes in second gets five points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, So they don't change anything at all. Here's what that does to the game. It completely guts that system because um, you work really hard. You climb way up to the top of that thing to score those 10 points at the end of the game. You know what? I completely ignore that meter for the whole game. And then at the last second, I just move up one pip on it right. and I come in second. That's so broken. Mm-hmm. Um, or what they'll often do is they say, oh, well, yeah, for the special case rules, um, there is no first place. There is only second place. So um, nobody can get 10 points off it. But whoever hits the most on it will get five and there is no third place. Um, That's still just as busted. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. It works. It functions. But it's... It, it loses any zazz that it once had. Super simple solution for that. Um, any designer, whoever wants to put a progress meter, must go and play a two-player game of – oh, 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 what was it? Um, Bell – yeah, Belfort. Is it Belfort? Yeah, Belfort, which is a worker placement game, um, which you know has these progress meters. And here's the thing. It's so simple. Um yeah, okay, they're just you and me. We're playing a two-player game. We're both vying for dominance of this particular progress meter. Um, when it gets to the end of the game, at, when you get to final scoring, take a, pip, a, you know, a piece from a third player, put them at space number seven. That's it. Or right at the very beginning of the game, just put them at seven on that scale of one to ten and never move them. Now, just by putting that one piece on the board, um, the fight for first or second becomes much more challenging. If you actually want to get first place, you got to move all the way up to eight. That's a lot of work. It means you got to commit a lot of time. Um, and now I can't just c- come in and get second place for nothing. I've got to work to be able to get second place. Otherwise, you know, I can get third. You know, a simple little thing like that, just putting one piece of wood, one token on the board as part of setup, and instantly... That battle in two-player is just as interesting, it's not as dynamic, but it's just as fulfilling as it would have been with more players. And yet the number of times I see designers not do that, it is mind-boggling to me. Right.
1: It's so much easier not to. And, and I guess in your head you think, oh, well, this works, so let's, let's, let's just focus on other parts of the game. But like what yeah. you're saying with Belfort, just by, just by taking the time and the effort to do, just come up with one solution can keep the feeling of the game that you're really chasing after. Because just because a game works doesn't mean it's accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Just because it it functions (laughs) in that two-player mode. Uh, And that's one thing I've talked to people about is, is focus on the player experience more so than does a mechanic work, does a theme work, all those things. Are the players experiencing what you want them to experience? What, do you want them to experience frustration? Okay, that's that's fine if that's <laughs> what you want. But if it's not what you want, then then be very very aware of the mechanics in your game, uh, specifically when you're scaling to different player counts.
0: Now, are there any yeah, others? Definitely. Um, you know, I think it's one of the reasons Steffen Feld mm-hmm. is you know one of the cons- most consistently reliable two player. Designers out there, or which is, you know, all his games support four or five players, but they almost always work well with two, is because I've read this several times. He plays his games tons with his wife his wife is his number one tester. Yep. And I think a lot of times you I mean it's 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 painstaking, it takes a lot of time for a designer to actually properly play test their game. And you know, they feel like, you know what? I'm going to get a lot more testing out of this if I p- test this as a four player game every time, cuz I'm getting four people's worth of input instead of just one if I test it as a two player mm-hmm. game. And so the two player invariably falls behind, and as you yourself said, well, okay, yeah, we we'll just make a couple changes. Yeah, that works. Now let's get back to te- playtesting it with four or five players, so we can, you know, in the same amount of time, get a ton more feedback. And then the two-player suffers. Right.
1: Yeah, and it's it honestly, it's it's a little, it's just lazy. It's just being lazy as a designer uh, a lot of times. I'm sure there's other circumstances and other things that play into it, but um, it's it's wanting to get the game out before it's ready. It's not taking the time to really focus on that last five percent of that game to make it great, and just being satisfied with it being okay or good. Are there any other trends that you see
0: in that list of the games you've gotten rid of? Um, Let's see. Well, another one, you know, I mentioned up front that, you know, worker placement, generally speaking, is a really good candidate for, you know, two-player scaling. Because all, all you got to do is just, you know, cut off some of the pieces on the board, right? Easy peasy. But for some games, you know, their design is such that, well, I, I, we can't get rid of any of these spaces. We, we fundamentally can't because... You know, we only have six worker placement spaces. Each one of them is for a different action. We can't just arbitrarily say, hey, let's just remove two of these spaces. Um, and so, well, I guess we won't scale that. And then suddenly, uh, the two-player worker placement of this game becomes much more loose. And, you know, there's not that same level of tension of, oh, my gosh, do I can I get where I need to go, you know, as, as fast as I want to? And, you know, that's such an easy thing to, to solve. Uh, uh, Steffen Feld, again, great two-player designer, uh, go back. Any designer who is doing a worker placement and you run into this situation where you can't just arbitrarily say, oh, I just got rid of 30% of my worker placement spots because you need them all. Look at what Steffen Feld did with Year of the Dragon. Year of the Dragon, you know, the main thing you're doing every round is there's a set of actions and players are drafting for it. Whoever goes first gets that action and everybody wanted that action. So it's kind of the equivalent. It's almost a worker placement, but it's just instead of placing workers on a tile, you grab the tile for yourself, right? Um, And so... In a two-player game, if everybody could just grab a tile, oh, you grab the tile I want, well, you know, there's still plenty of other tiles, I'll grab another tile, no big deal. So here's what he did. He says, as part of the setup in a given round, um, take those tiles, What is? I think there's five of them, Um, take those five tiles, shuffle them up, and make a group of three tiles and a group of two tiles. Now, whoever is first player, he gets to grab either of those groups. And um, by him taking that, not only did he take the one he wanted, he took, if, you know, if he takes the group of three, he took two other tiles. And now I'm stuck with just these other two. And I desperately need the one that's in the group he took. Now, that doesn't really fundamentally change anything about the core of the game. But suddenly, um, you know, he didn't get rid of any of the five actions he needed to do. But with this one extra rule that happens with smaller player counts, the game gets just as tight and just as tense. And fighting for first player is just as important as it is with the higher... Because because it's not loose anymore. And you know, that, is a, that is a solution that you could easily apply. Like actually, um, what was an example of it? Um, 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 Islebound is a, again, it's not a worker placement game. But it has the same basic thing. It's a pick up and deliver game. You're, you're sailing your Corsair or your ship from island to island. And the thing is, if, um, if, if, if a person is in a space that I want to go to, I can go there, much like a worker placement, but I have to pay a little bit extra right? So there, there's, a, there's a cost to getting in. But the problem is, in a two-player game, the board is so wide open, you know what? That's just never going to happen. I'm not going to pay to go to where you are. I'm just going to go someplace else, and I'll wait for you to move away. Um, and you know, in my run-through, I complained about that, that the, the board just isn't as tight as I know it would be if I was playing with a higher player count. And I mentioned, you know, again, borrowing from Stefan Feld, if it were as simple as saying, hey, you know what? If you move your ship um, into a given space, not only that space, But every space around it on the board is considered owned by you. Suddenly, a single player is taking up 20% of the board. And now it's much more likely that that's made things much more difficult for me. And now I've got those same kind of decisions I would have to make. Oh, do I give you the money to go where I need to go? Or do I move off someplace else? That's a simple thing you can do. And I was so happy to see they did that. And I haven't actually played Islebound because I never actually got a final that often happens. I often don't end up getting retail copies of the prototypes. I do, but I read that they did ultimately introduce that, and I've read reviews of it as a two-player game. And they say, "Wow, it's really, really great. It tightens up the board, and it's a simple, natural addition to add." And you know, and that's taking that's taking a concept that was from this action tile selection game and applying it to a pickup and deliver game. But you could also apply that to a worker placement game. Uh, because it's it's, it's more it's that fundamental underlying thing of how do, in a two-player game, we replicate the end result of a three- or four-player game without having to bog the player down with a bunch of extra minutia and, and upkeep. Simple little things like that, if they just take the time to do it, can exponentially increase the experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Any kind, any kind of mechanic you can uh, have in your game or add in your game that either gives the first person to go a place uh, a bonus or they get a bigger discount or whatever it is. You just want to make it important. Because you know, in a four-player, five-player game, it's important to go to certain places first or to do certain things so, so that maybe, maybe other players can't or whatever. And so you want to create that same kind of experience in that two-player game because you want to have that tension. I, I know you've talked about a lot of games uh, that you just felt so abundant uh, in, in your yeah. resources and like the game was just so uh, we're we're both so wealthy and rich in resources that it's not as much fun because it's well it's you know you get all these options and all these different uh, choices to make.
0: Yeah, and you know there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe the designers going for that. Maybe they want to say right up front, you know what we want the two player experience to be more casual and laid back, <laughs> and that's fine if that's what you were going for. Fine, go for it. But I don't play games just to relax. I play games to be given a series of Challenging problems to solve and so that I can feel good and get that dopamine rush when I do actually solve that problem Um, you know, that's that's the funda- fundamental chemistry that makes these things addictive. I got, oh, Um, let's see another example You know, I guess this is an example of something is done, but it drives me nuts. that It's not done. Um, um, um What is it? Rob Davio's new legacy game Seafall the which Seafall yeah. Seafall yeah, 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 uh, it doesn't support two players right right and fair enough. Okay, I'm never going to get a chance to play that game. But my understanding of one of the core elements that the game requires demands to more than three players is that um, it's it's a runaway leader catch-up problem. If one player, through random luck or happenstance, happens to just you know bolt take off like a like a like a bat out of hell, they just get lucky and things fall on their laps, the other players recognize that and say, okay, we got to put our differences aside and take him down because the game gives you a lot of tools to be able to, you know, sink other players' ships or steal from their home port or whatever. And in a two-player game, that will never, ever work because if you get crazy lucky and stream ahead, there's nobody for me to collude with to pull you back down, right? Right. So it fundamentally can't work as a two-player game. Fine. Fair enough. I've made my piece of the fact I'll never get to play Seafall. I wonder, though, could they have not introduced a mechanism that, you know, a simple set of rules that recognizes for two player that if one player pulls out a head like that, that there is an external third force, third force that will pull them back down. It will slow them down so it gives the other player the opportunity to rubber band up. I mean, rubber banding is a very, very common conceit you see in like in video games, like Mario Kart. You know, in, in Mario Kart, if uh, you're not doing very well and the AIs just take off and you know you, you lost, the AIs, I mean, they have a rubber band. They cannot get too far ahead. They give you a chance to catch back up. A well-designed game wants to make sure that happens as well because it's not fun for anybody. It's not fun for the person who takes off and can't be touched. It's not fun for everybody else who gets left in their dust. So they do catch up mechanisms where the cost for succeeding becomes higher the further ahead you get of everybody. Um, there's two ways you can resolve that problem. You can come up with a way to do that or you can come up with a way to let players self-police. Oh, you have pulled out ahead. You're a runaway leader. We'll collude to pull you back down. Two players you can't do that, come up with a rubber band. I... I understand, you know, Rob decided. You know what? We would rather not do that extra work. I'm not going to say it's lazy on his part. That's a big, complex, heavy game to design. It just breaks my heart that they couldn't have spent an extra six months. But you know, maybe in a game like that they can't because there's so many permutations. There's so many impacts for every decision that gets made because every decision you make in that in a legacy game is permanent. But it still breaks my heart. I bet you there was a way to do it, but you know, the drive wasn't there because two player i mean it's weird you look you go back to 10 years ago the board game industry i recently did uh, my top 10 games that i loved that were published before the year 2009 i just put this video up just a couple days ago yeah, because it. i got started in 2009 and most of the games i love came out around that time or immediately after but there are games that i loved before then in doing my research and going back and looking at older games that I have loved, the thing I noticed over and over and over again is, my God, nobody cared about two-player back in the late 90s or the early... or the aughts or the oddies They just didn't care. Um, you know, so many games have three-player minimums. And if they do have two-player minimums, your Power Grids, your El Grandes, they might as well not be there because they're just clearly was not the focus of the game. Um, and it's funny. I mean, I just... I kind of count myself lucky that I got into board gaming in 2009, 2010 because it seems like there was a sea change going on at that point where the two-player um, experience was um, deemed to be an equal focus. It's weird. When I started doing Roto Runs Through and my sole focus of the show was on two-player I heard from so many people in the early days. Oh my gosh! Thank you for starting to do the show because we only play two-player, and nobody else talks about it. Nobody else focuses on. It. Nobody else mentions. How does this play as a two-player game? Um, nowadays, I mean, I just in the last six years, I think it's really coming on. You're getting a lot more like you, like me, um, just couple gaming. Um, you know, either for because of the situ because of their circumstance of geography or just, you know, the circumstance of their relationship, they don't they don't have other people to play with. So I think it's a golden age for two players. Um, yay. And you know, there are there's just a handful of really simple tricks you can apply to most games that make it work.
1: Yeah, and I want to get back into those tricks here in a second. You know, with a game okay. like Seafall, I mean, when you're designing a game that's going to last fifteen games or more. I can't imagine the time it would take to come up with that two player mechanic. I know it is I know it's there. I know it's possible for that game uh, yeah. to do it, but it would have been so difficult. One one interesting thing I was thinking about, uh, the the catch up mechanics I've seen. So you know like a lot of games have that mechanic where whoever's in first place has to give a resource or give money or give a something to the person in, in last place. Whoever's in first loses something, whoever's in last gains something and it hopefully will balance some things out. Well, if that mechanic is also in the two-player game, it can make some really interesting scenarios. I was playing a game, oh, this is sometime last year, with a friend of mine, and he was in first place by like two points. I mean, just barely after this round. And then he had to give me this whole, this like really great resource that was going to really help him. Well, now he had to give that to me because I was technically in last place. Yeah. And he looked at me he goes, this can't be the rule. Like this, <laughs> there's no way, this is not, like we searched that rule book, but it was in the two-player game, yeah. just like the regular game. And
0: so I you see ax- that, that's That's an example of a you know, design mechanism that's it's got its heart in the right place. Yeah. But it is almost always a mistake to be so blatant mm-hmm. and open with your catch up mechanisms. You really gotta find a good way to hide them. Yeah. Um you're know, like like what's a good example? Um oh, uh the city building game. Sunset city, sunrise city? Uh, something like that. Is that the one the where you thing stack is-
1: the, the stack the cards, the tiles?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. You have really thick tiles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you work your way around the the, the scoreboard, you know the the, the victory point track. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the, the it's broken up into sections so that yeah, you know what? I'm getting one for one because I, I think if I recall correctly, you turn money into points in that game or something like that, and I'm getting one for one, one for one, one point for one dollar. But then you hit a wall where oh, I have to. I can't jump into the next section of this until I pay a certain amount of money or maybe it's when you jump into this, the next section um, You know, if it gets more expensive. The notion of, you know what, the more successful you are, the tougher things get for you because you've got more stuff going on. Um, oh, oh, oh. Um, Martin Wallace's A Few Acres of Snow is brilliant. It's a deck builder um, that's crossed with a war area control game. Every time I take a new plot of land on the map... Um, That is represented by me having to add a bunch of command cards related to that plot of land into my deck. Um, And those command cards only have very, very limited use. They kind of clog up my deck. You know, because, oh, I'm out on the front. I'm trying to take over this spot. But I get a bunch of cards that have to do with this piece of land I got way back early in the game. They're just wasting. So the fact that I'm being more successful in pulling ahead is creating additional problems for me to solve because I'm a captain of industry. I'm a captain of this huge, big nation, and it's tougher to keep all my ducks in a row. Whereas the player who's in last place, the player who's fallen behind, I've got a tighter, slimmer deck that is designed for victory. That is, you know, that's just as blatant and transparent a catch-up mechanism as what you just described. But it's not because it feels natural. Mm-hmm. It feels like uh, you know an organic progression of what would just happen in this simulation, as opposed to because you know in the real world, winners aren't forced to give money to losers. <laughs> right. um, now, but they can be. You can find ways. I mean, you know, in the real world. Well, I won't. I want to go down too far yeah, into it politics, like but in the taxes. Real world, and whatnot, yeah. It's not all that uncommon <laughs> that. Higher earners are in a higher tax bracket and therefore pay more in taxes unless you happen to, well, anyway, well, anyway yeah. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but you know what I'm talking about. Right. So, I mean, that's a way that you can integrate a catch-up mechanism into a game that feels more appropriate and won't pull you out of the game and make your friends say, come on, this mm. is, this is, this Gar-
1: is garbage. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Because I actually, I beat him. He had to do that. It was a three-round game, and he had to give yeah. me uh, resources or something like that for two of those rounds going into the third. And so I won in the third round because of the things he had had to give me, not because he didn't play well, not because I made better decisions, really, but because the game beat him down and put us too close to even at the end when he should have been far ahead. He was outplaying me by leaps and bounds. But I won because well, the game. Well, would
0: argue. I would imagine the designer of that game would argue that he didn't outplay you leaps and bounds because, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Um, That was a predictable element of the simulation. And if he was playing all his angles, he would have been playing that angle too.
1: Hmm. You know? Yeah, fair enough. Uh,
0: He would have waited. I mean, a, 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 a system like that could actually add more depth and interest to the game, by making it a viable choice to stay behind. True. I want to stay behind. You were outplaying him by staying just behind him, just enough so that it would flip, and yeah. he could realize, well, this isn't doing any good. I got to let you surge ahead of me, right. so that I could get pulled back up. You know, so what could? Now I don't know. I don't know what the game is, but you know, again, you know, a good designer can can make anything a viable and interesting part of the simulation.
1: Very true. That's a good point. Uh, And it gets back to what kind of experience do you want the players to have? Uh, And and is it, do you want a different experience for four players than two players? Or are you trying to uh, simulate the exact same kind of experience for all player accounts? Let's get back into what are some of the best mechanics you've seen in scaling? Uh, The games have done it well. They've just scaled down. You talk about Belfort. You talk about um, some other games that have done really, really good jobs of the scaling down. What what are some of those little details that make a game good for two players?
0: You want more? I gave you Belfort Year of the Dragon, man. <laughs> um, that's it. Uh, all right. I uh, here's the one thing. Um, you know, Arguably, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of games, but um, I don't know how to read the Dewey Decimal System, so I can never actually find anything in my <laughs> library of game knowledge. Um, let me pull up a list of games I like and see if anything jumps out at me as being a good example. As I watch... There we go, Chrome. You did it. Let's see. Oh! Right off the bat, Dungeon Pets has, I think, one of the most beautiful, brilliant, board-tightening mechanisms for worker placement I've ever seen, and I've never seen anybody duplicate it or adopt it. And every time... I I think it should be in every worker placement game that wants to be a two-player. It's basically the notion uh, you know, it's, it's another way, I talked about that earlier, that a problem with worker placement, tightening up the board could be, we can't tighten up the board, we need all these spaces, we can't get rid of these actions. So, you know, in the Year of the Dragon, that was one way to do it. Um, you know, come up with a thing where, hey, you know what, I'm not just claiming one action, I'm claiming this action and all adjacent actions. So that, you know, tightens the board up. That's a really simple thing to do. But what um, Dungeon Pets did is, if you're playing the two player game, you um, put the um, workers for a third dummy player, on certain spots on the board. right? And um, I forget where they are, they start out on the, the, the food space and the trap space or something like that. These are places you'd want to go to grab some food or some traps. And, okay, for the first round of the game, those spaces are occupied. It's as if player three, he got to go first and he just snagged both of those spaces. At the end of round one, each of those two little dummies, they move clockwise to the next space on the board. Um, And, you know, in fact, there's actually little arrows on the board that show where they will move from round to round. So we know in the first round we can't pick up traps and vegetables, right? Um, And I know for a fact in the second round I am not going to be able to pick up – I forget what they are um, – cages and uh, um, potions because I know that's how they're going to move. So – that creates an in, a deeper and more interesting circumstance. I don't feel like I need potions right now. But I know I can't get them next turn. Not because somebody might beat me to them, but because they will just literally disappear. So that gives me an extra thing to think about. Maybe I should grab a potion right now. I might not have otherwise. But if I'm bearing in mind there is this extra element to the simulation that in two turns, okay, potions will be avail- they're, they're available now. They're available in two turns. They're not available next turn. Should I grab one now and wait on this other thing? Um, But in two turns, I know the auction block is going to be gone. And in two turns from now, that's when I'm planning to sell my pet. And I want to be on the auction block so I can get the best um, price. So, I mean, I'm now, because of this... Super-duper simple thing that couldn't be more simple and elegant and intuitive. You just put these things on the board as part of set every round. You just move them to the next spot. Suddenly, the game has become much deeper and richer. I am now in a situation where I can be plotting two, three, four rounds in advance. And I'll be honest. I'm not that smart a player. I'm not some big gress, you know, chess grandmaster who can pull that kind of stuff off normally. But... The predictability of the simulation with this simple little rule that you could apply to any worker placement game under the sun. This would instantly plug in anywhere, and it would replicate the dynasism of a three- or four-player game because, hey, there's another player on the board. Um, but in the same way that if I know you really well and I know how you love to play the game, I can predict what you're going to do. I could predict what this dummy's going to do because there are rules that say what he's going to do. Simple system, so brilliant. I mean, that's why Vladislavov is the best. Um, you know, he tightened up that board brilliantly in Dungeon Pets. Um, what else? What else? I mean, most of the time, you know, your castle's of Burgundy. Yeah, I mean, you just do the obvious thing. You um, instead of four tiles that four green tiles that come out every round, only two come out. So you know, simple, easy, no problem. And you know, nation, same thing. Um, you know, only three cards come out into every row instead of five cards. So, you know, there's just fewer resources. Now, some people will complain, though. Actually, it's interesting. People complain about the design of Nations that if you are playing it with lower player counts, it becomes too random, hmm. which is an interesting and almost unexpected thing because we were talking about how normally. Two-player gives you more control. There's less randomness. There's less chaos because you can anticipate better how the game is going to evolve. And less stuff happens before it comes back around your turn. But people argue that Nations becomes more chaotic because if you're playing the full player count of Nations, every single card is going to come out because every round, you fill up every column. But if you play two-player, you only fill up three of the five columns. So what is that? Two-fifths of all the cards will never appear in the game. Right. And that means if you're a super Mensa level um, player who thinks, right, I know at some point Alexander Graham Bell is going to come out, and I'm, my entire strategy is built on when he's going to come out. I'm playing two hours into the future for when that card is going to come, but I can't be sure if it's going to come, the game is weaker because there is that unpredictability. Me, that, I say, oh my gosh, that's so wonderful. I'm so happy to play Nations and not be guaranteed that Alexander Graham Bell is going to be in the game every single time. Um, because it's interesting, I'll, already, as a two-player game, I'm playing more strategically because I have more control. I don't mind that the flip side of that is a little bit more chaos gets introduced back in to replicate the chaos that I would get with a higher player count. So to me, it's you know six of one, half a dozen the other. It all comes out in the wash. But I know for some people, that makes nations a poor two-player game and that's why they'd rather play through the ages because no matter what your player count is and through the ages every single card will come out me i like a little bit more unpredictability so nations is an interesting case study you know they did the simple thing just turn off a couple of columns of cards less cards will come out two fists i forget if those are the actual numbers but you get the idea but for me that makes the game stronger um what else the only thing i I would wonder
1: about though in a design like that is if you have a bunch of cards that are balancing cards so if you have a red card that bounces out a blue card but now because you've limited the number of cards that come out that blue card never comes out which creates a a a power vacuum so to speak where the red is now ultra you know ultra powerful that's the only thing to be aware of in that kind of situation is is the balancing
0: but you just you said the magic words be aware of true that's only a problem if you have a situation where noobs are playing against advanced players and the advanced players are kind of dicks and don't (laughs) clue their friends into the fact that oh by the way I'm really good at this game I just want to give you a couple little hints so you won't get completely destroyed by me because we're playing a two-player game there may or may not be a surplus of blue cards and that makes them less valuable so you might not want to try and monopolize those Um, you just have to bear that in mind I'm gonna bear that in mind you do it too and, I mean, it just becomes your example, which is totally valid. That's the nation's issue that people have. That just means it's, an, it's a risk you have to take. Grab that card knowing that its complementary card may never show up. Maybe you shouldn't grab that card. Um, you know, It adds an element of unpredictability. But, you know what? I don't know. I like occasionally rolling dice in a game. Mm-hmm. I like a little bit of unpredictability. Um, now, they, there can be too much. Uh, You know, there are certainly plenty of games out there that make you roll the die way too much, and um, predictability goes out the window. Um, But a bit, uh, you know, I I like in rolling dice to salt. You know, a little bit of salt just kind of sharpens the meal and just makes it so much better. Too much salt destroys it. I think the same is true of randomness and unpredictability. So I don't mind a little bit of unpredictability, but I know there are some people diehard super, what's the word, grognards, who want, you know, perfect information. Um, you know and that's fine it's just you know different structure different folks in terms of you know the way games work
1: yeah absolutely uh, let's get one more mechanic that you think works really well and then let's oh, go no, into what? some ad- advice you would give for for designers creating two player games or, or trying to scale their games down one more one more pick a good one
0: okay well you know this has kind of been broached but I, I, I you know, but just kind of in a, in a roundabout way, but I'm just going to talk about dummy players in general. Because it's interesting, dummy players are kind of a dirty word to a lot of players out there. Yeah. Oh, it's got a dummy player, is that their solution? I refuse! Yeah. I refuse to play, sir! Uh, I never get that. Um, and I don't think that's the designer's fault. I think that's the player's fault for not recognizing... That a good dummy player, I mean, yeah, there can be such thing as a bad dummy player, a dummy player where they, the designer tries too hard to replicate everything that a regular player would do, and it just becomes onerous and burdensome, and you're just like, I want to make this dummy go away because it's a, it's just slowing down the flow of the game. But a good dummy player, um, like uh, like that, that example in Belfort I mentioned, where, oh yeah, the only thing a dummy player has to do is just occupy a space on the board, or you know, the dummy player in Dungeon Pets. That enhances the game because, again, it comes back to what we were talking about right up front. It gives me, in a two-player game, more to think about. I think, and this is blasphemy for a lot of people, Seven Wonders. You know, the modern Antoine Bauza card-drafting classic that everybody loves. Best player count for that game, as far as I'm concerned? Two. It is at its absolute best as a two-player game because... They introduce what I think is called the Free City. Uh, you know, it, 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 It's a dummy player. Now, all that dummy player does is just sits over to the side and becomes another resource that you and me, playing the game, can exploit and manipulate. Now, if that were a real human being, if that were Bob, I can exploit and manipulate Bob, but... Um, you in know, in a less predictable fashion because i don't know exactly what he's going to do i don't know what he's going to hold off and stuff like that but the free city i know exactly what they're going to do i know exactly when they are going to pay money to buy my lumber cuz they don't have their own because i'm the one who whispering there hey you want to build that wonder that needs a lot of lumber cuz i'm the only shop in town for lumber baby <laughs> adding that just makes the game deeper and richer and more exciting anybody who says no that makes the game awful for whatever reason I don't understand why it's so much more fun there's so much more depth and complexity while still being very um, intuitive and elegant and simple to understand it's it's absolutely lovely it's weird Seven Wonders officially isn't a two player game they're almost kind of ashamed to admit oh by the way we've got this little two player variant we'd really rather you ignore it it's like it's the best version of the game because it's so much It's all about me interacting with you, but I have an extra tool at my disposal. And the most interesting thing about it is it's a tool that you and I share. We have joint custody of this free city. And that's just a whole nother wheel that has to spin in my head as we're playing the game. It's why Seven Wonders isn't bested too. It's absolutely mind-boggling to me. So my advice would be, I, I don't know, I might want to say my device is, Designers, don't listen to those crusty old dinosaurs who hate um, dummy players. Dummy players done well rock the house. And you just got to wait for those guys to get old and die. Um, because a new generation is coming up of, of couples gamers who want deeper, richer experiences, who aren't afraid of having a more complex simulation by having a dummy player. I, I don't know. I you, you gave me the platform, so I'm just going to sing the praises of dummy players. Awesome, man.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Hey, that's, uh, that's our time today. Roddo, I really appreciate your insight, your perspective, your thoughts on the two player experience. Uh, we're actually going to go into a bonus round. We're going to talk about some themes that Rotto loves and some themes that he would really like to see more of in games. Uh, you can check that out over on the website, BoardGamedesignLab.com. Click on the bonus tab, and uh, you can get all the bonus material from all our episodes. But Rodo, really appreciate you being here, man. Sure thing. And uh, we'll catch you later.
0: All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?